Hi, everybody, and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name's Amanda Woidis, and I'm your host. Doing some housekeeping up top again so I can remind you that if you haven't already, please follow the podcast on Twitter, at LifeTKPodcast, and on Instagram, at Life underscore TK. Subscribe to my newsletter by going to LifeTK.com scrolling down to the bottom of the about page and clicking updates. Also, I am so bad at social and I just now made a Life TK Facebook page, so search for that and follow me. Should be fun. Okay, now for the good stuff. My interview today is with Lilith Marcus, the travel editor of CNN.com, previously a contributing digital editor at Condé Nast Traveler, and the founding editor-in-chief of The Gloss. Elite is also the author of a book called Save the Assistance, A Guide to Surviving and Thriving in the Workplace, which started as a blog she launched with a friend after a particularly bad first job in publishing. They thought it would be cool to start an online resource where assistants could share horror stories, eventually added posts about advice, and it blew up. I think even if you've never had an assistant job before, there's still a lot of relevant advice in the book. One passage about bad jobs I liked in particular. <clears throat> By landing a gig, you've already accomplished something. That shouldn't stop you from looking for better work, using the office copier to print out extra copies of your resume, and sneaking out on your lunch break to go to an interview. But it should help to ground you on those days when you feel tempted to just storm out of the office and never look back. There's no law saying you can't simultaneously hate your job and also want to do well at it. In fact, it's a lot easier to be ambitious when you have work that backs up your ambition. And this interview is full of insights just as wonderful as that one. If I could look back at 12-year-old Lilith who thought that it would be a miracle someday if she could get published in her hometown newspaper, what would I tell her? And the point is that she loved writing and I love writing. And it can be hard sometimes when you write for a living. You come home and you're burned out and you think you don't have any more ideas and that you've used up everything that you have. And if you don't still love it at the end of the day, then you are not going to enjoy it as your career because it is demanding, it doesn't pay well, and it is really competitive. See? So good. I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's hear what Lily was up to in her 20s. One of the fun things that I learned about coming to New York City, I came the minute that I graduated from college. Uh, I literally took the bus. I feel like that's one of those things that people in New York ask you a lot is people always say, how did you get here? Yeah. And I think what they mean is, oh, New York's such a tough city to live in. Did you have a job offer that brought you here? Did you move with friends? Did you come with a partner? You know, do you have family here? And my answer is literally, I came on the bus. Uh, I feel like that's such a <laughs> cheesy cliche. It's like those apple-cheeked girls pulling up in buses in Los Angeles, like ready for their Hollywood dreams to come true. Yeah. And unfortunately, I had a little bit of that, which was kind of embarrassing. I had this idea that I was going to go to New York City and be a writer, and I had literally no idea how I was going to do that. I, you know, I grew up in North Carolina. I grew up in Raleigh. I went to UNC Greensboro. And okay. while I had a great education, I felt like I was missing a lot of cultural capital. It's sort of the things that everybody is just supposed to know when they become an adult. Like, I felt like everyone had gotten this handbook the minute that they graduated from college, and I just hadn't. And I think some of it is class issues. Like, you know, if your parents don't work white-collar jobs, how are you ever supposed to learn about them? Yeah. So I think when I came to New York, I was interviewing for jobs or applying for jobs that I wasn't really qualified for because I didn't understand that I was supposed to start as an assistant. And maybe that comes off as egotistical, but I grew up in a community where entry-level jobs were often staffed by people who hadn't gone to college. Mm -hmm. And there was this notion that, oh, if you went to college, you get to jump ahead a couple of years. And I think that's a really outdated idea. That's something that maybe was true when my parents graduated from college, but not for me. So first, I had to understand that I was fighting against people who went to Yale and who had incredible connections just to get a $20,000 a year job answering someone's telephone. Right. That didn't really match up with the idea of being a super successful writer in Manhattan that I had originally come up with. And so that was kind of the first thing that had to go out the window before my career could go anywhere. I had this really dumb idea that I could just show up and start writing long-form magazine features, and it was just going to be as easy as college was. 
Yeah. And it wasn't. Yeah. So the first job that I got in New York City was I interviewed for a job as a receptionist at a literary agency. And they really liked me. I thought it was a good fit. And I figured, well, I don't want to be a receptionist, but I would love to work at a literary agency. That sounds so interesting. I don't know anything about publishing, so hopefully I'll get to learn a lot. Show up on my first day, and the office manager says, oh, great, put your stuff down at the reception desk, and then I'm going to talk to you about the rest of your job. And I was thinking, what does she mean, the rest of my job? It turns out that I was also sort of baited and switched, and I was supposed to be part-time assistant to one of the executives with the company, in addition to being a receptionist, all for $24,000 a year. And on one level, I was happy because I thought, oh, great, I'll actually work with an agent. I'll actually learn about what this job is. But it turned out that the reason they weren't advertising for this position is that this executive was getting demoted by the company. They were trying to force him out because he uh, he was a lot older than everybody else. He had kind of – most of his clients weren't working anymore. He actually wasn't even a literary agent. He was just someone that they had brought in who worked in a different aspect of the entertainment industry. But he was a part owner of the company, so they couldn't push him out, even though every other person at the company worked as a literary agent. So immediately I was like, what's happening here? <laughs> and one way that they were demoting this guy was that before me he had had a full-time executive assistant with her own office. Oh. Yeah, I had no idea what had happened before I took this job. So one thing that can be really strange and jarring, and so many of my Save the Assistants readers commented on, was that I was essentially set up to fail, and a lot of people yeah. are at entry-level jobs. There were so many things going on that it was a perfect storm of me being terrible at my job. Part of it is that it was simply my first job out of college, and I was in over my head and didn't really know what I was doing. Part of it was that I really lacked this cultural capital of working in a modern office. I knew how to do all the parts of my job. I knew how to answer phones and make tea and, you know, set up Excel spreadsheets. But I didn't understand all the office dynamics and politics and how things were supposed to work, who I was supposed to defer to, if I was allowed to take a lunch break. Uh, And I had a huge learning curve in terms of just figuring out how to work in an office with adults. And then the fact that this guy was ready to hate me for something that I had nothing to do with all kind of set me up to be a really bad assistant. And I was. I was a terrible (laughs) assistant. Um. I'm not very organized. This guy was kind of all over the place. Most of his clients had retired. So a lot of the work that he was doing was like pro bono favors for his friends. So between that, this guy is used to having someone at his beck and call constantly like bringing him things and running around his office and doing tasks for him. And yet I was expected to do that and also handle a reception desk of a very busy Manhattan office and, you know, not have anyone waiting too long at the front door without getting buzzed in. So, I learned a lot, and some of it was good and some of it was bad. But I think what I really stuck on was that I feel like this comes up a lot with women is I was too embarrassed to ask for help. Yeah. I felt like everybody that I worked with, even the assistants who were the same age as me, they all knew what they were doing. How come I didn't know what I was doing? And my instinct whenever I don't know something is to Google it. And I started Googling all kinds of weird search terms and phrases around work. Like, what do I do when I get yelled at for something that's not my fault? Um, Why do people insist on using their initials at work, even though there's no one here with the same name as them? And I couldn't really find good answers to these things. Instead, I found tons of websites designed for people at work, but they were all sort of for people who are a lot further along than I was. It was stuff about, should I get an MBA? How do I build my personal brand? And that was so far beyond what I needed. I needed, like, how do I get through a day without crying? Yeah. And I realized that no one wanted to advertise to assistants because we had no money. Therefore, nobody saw a profitable business model in career advice for young people. And almost everything that I found was some variation of, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, millennials are entitled, get over it. And I got really upset because it wasn't for me about, I wanted to do the work. I wanted to learn. I knew that I was going to have to start at the bottom and learn about my industry, but I didn't expect to be screamed at or to have things thrown at me and to be called entitled for not wanting those things. Yeah. So luckily, uh, my saving grace at that job was that I became very close with some of the other assistants. 
and felt comfortable enough to start confiding in a couple of them. And it turned out that a lot of them didn't know any more than I did. They had just been there longer than me. Or maybe this was their second job instead of their first job. But if not for the other assistants, I never would have survived at that job. So they would talk to me about the little, like, things that had happened at the company before I started that I wouldn't have known about but that really informed how things were done there, like the thing about the full-time assistant or just little things about getting around in the office, like faster ways to fill out forms, where to store stuff that your boss wanted you to hold on to for him without making your desk a mess. It was all these little things, and yet they added up to making my life so much easier. And that's when I really started to think, I wish there was a version of these conversations that I have every day with my new friends at work. What if these people were on the Internet instead of in my office? And because a lot of the friends that I had gone to college with were still back home in North Carolina and they were working at smaller companies where there were maybe two or three lawyers at a law firm and they were the one assistant, they didn't have these kind of huge corporate jobs to deal with or these sort of extra layers to contend with. And I realized that we needed different kinds of advice but ultimately wanted the same thing and that there wasn't one central place for all of us to talk to each other and become allies. And as a joke, one of the other assistants, her name is Ashley, Ashley and I were like, man, somebody should make a website called Save the Assistants that we can just go to when we have questions about the weird stuff that happens at work. And eventually, we just decided to make it ourselves, and it started as a joke. It began as a place for people to anonymously submit their horror stories about crazy stuff that had happened at work. And it was fun, but there wasn't much more to it than that. And I started thinking, as I settled into that job and started looking at what I wanted to do next, I kept thinking, complaining is great, but complaining isn't going to get me out of here. And the sort of, like, if I went out for drinks with coworkers, I realized that the night would kind of take a certain form. Maybe half an hour or so, we'd have our first drink, and everybody would complain about work or tell some insane story that had happened, and we would all commiserate. But then the rest of the night, we would give each other advice on who was hiring or what rumors we had heard about jobs that were opening up that we might be eligible for. We would help each other with our resumes. We would offer to introduce a friend to somebody else. And I realized that's what the site was missing. I didn't just want it to be a place to complain. I wanted it to to be a place where you could get help, you could get advice, and you could move on from being an assistant if that's what you wanted. And that's when it really started to take off. That's when it started to have a life of its own, was if I didn't know the answer to something, I would just post it and say, guys, I'm not sure how I would handle this situation. Nothing like this has ever happened to me. What would you do? And people would write in with these fantastic answers. And I realized that there were a lot of people reading the site who weren't just my friends. It was hard to get a sense of who was participating because I would occasionally get these horror stories and I would publish them. But then I started doing recaps of TV shows that featured assistant characters. Like Ugly Betty had just started. The Office was on. There was Lloyd, the assistant, on Entourage. And I would see them on TV and think, oh, this would never happen at an office. Like, are you kidding? Or occasionally, even if the moment was over the top, I'd see something in it that had a real kernel of truth in it and think, okay, I may not work at Mode Magazine, which is fictional, and all of these situations are ridiculous, But actually what Betty did is really smart, and you could apply that in a real-life work situation, and here's what I would do. Yeah. And I would interview people who had really cool jobs who had started out as assistants. Because I think the thing that was hard for me to see was how do you get from A to B, let alone A to Q. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, these people have really cool jobs, and they used to be assistants, but when should I try to get promoted, or should I leave, or what's my next step going to be? And I think that's the really scary thing is I grew up, around a lot of people who worked at the same company their whole lives. You know, you picked a team and you stayed on your team. And the idea that I was going to need to hop around a little bit more, that maybe I would learn skills somewhere else or try a different kind of field, that seemed really scary at the time. And being able to talk to people who owned their own businesses or were really successful in their line of work who had started as an assistant gave me a sense of, oh, actually, I'm doing way more than stapling stuff all day. I really am learning skills, and I am going to keep using these the rest of my career. Yeah, because it's hard when you're in a job to see the bigger picture. And those assistant jobs are so intuitive. Like, I sit next to 
our editor-in-chief's assistant. And it's almost like there is no handbook. Like, she just has to be on it all the time, constantly. And I think also what I didn't realize about being an assistant is that I kept hoping that there was a manual. The -hmm. way that I think sometimes can be logical to a fault. I keep expecting people to fall into patterns the way that numbers and letters do and then being really frustrated when they don't. And especially at work, I felt like the best way for me to learn was by example. So if I saw how a certain situation worked out, I would do it exactly the same way the next time, even if the circumstances had changed and it wasn't the best solution. And I think when you're an assistant, part of what's difficult about it is that you're often working for one or two specific people. And even if you get advice, ultimately it comes down to the relationship that you have with the person you assist. So it's up to that person's particular sort of habits and preferences. And there are some bosses who want you to be there earlier than them every day and buy their breakfast and make sure that it's already set up when they get there. There are some people who like to do everything for themselves, but then hand you a giant pile of receipts at the end of the day and say, make sure my expense account is in order. And you have to learn about different kinds of people. Ultimately, I felt like I got a crash course in entry-level psychology from working at this job because I needed to get to know my boss as a person in order to work with him. I needed to know the fact that he drank tea and not coffee and what kind he liked or how he would handle different situations, how his voice would change based on who he was talking to on the phone so that I could get a sense of whether it was a personal call and I should close his office door. And once I got used to him as a person, that really helped me do my job. When you were working on Save the Assistance, like when you first launched that, did you go into it with an idea of like, this is how I'm going to like, I'm going to take this experience and like parlay it into something that could get me to the next level of my career? Or were you just like... Oh, God, never. If anything, (laughs) I thought I was going to get blacklisted. You did. Um, Because I never wrote about my own experiences. I think a lot of people just heard the name Save the Assistant and assumed that it was some kind of Devil Wears Prada thing where I worked for someone really famous. And the guy that I worked for is just a guy. Uh, If anything, I wanted advice that would help me get through that or any other assistant job. But I started to panic that someone would unmask me, that people would figure out who I was. And eventually when I did attach my real name to the site, it wasn't until after I left that job. And I really didn't want it to be some kind of expose. I feel like if you work for Anna Winter and you want to spill dirt on her, you can probably get a book deal out of it. But, you know, for those of us across the country who worked for generic white guy middle manager number seven, that's not an option. And if anything, that's where greater injustices can take place because we don't have the fact that we can publicly shame this person on our side. And so I think it became a really different scenario where I I kind of realized that I didn't want to work in book publishing. Mm -hmm. I thought I had, but once I learned more about the industry, I realized that I would be happier working in editorial. So part of it, I felt a little bit empowered by the fact that I wasn't planning to stay in the industry because I do think it could have been an issue. Yeah, it's, Publishing is a lot smaller than I thought it was, and everyone kind of knows each other, and so much of what happens in publishing is because of strong relationships. And there were definitely people that I thought, oh, I think I published something from your assistant anonymously once. Do you know? Oh, no. <laughs> And I don't know if these people knew. I don't even know if they knew about Save the Assistance or if they cared. But yeah. a few friends of mine who did stay in publishing and went on to higher level jobs in the industry would occasionally get comments about it. Like, oh, are you friends with that girl who runs Save the Assistance? If she knew what was good for her, she would shut it down. And there is a saying where I grew up that if they're shooting at you, it's because you're doing something right. Yeah. And I thought about that a lot. I thought, if you're so afraid of my little blog that makes no money, doesn't have any advertising, that in the grand scheme of the Internet has nowhere near the popularity of something like Gawker, which was huge at the time, I thought, I must be on to something. Horror stories were maybe 10% of what I was publishing at that point. And once the blog started to take off and it was becoming more popular and I was starting to get press and people were writing about it, I did get approached by several literary agents about doing a book, and that was um, mid-2000s, so that was when a lot of blog-to-book deals started going down for a lot of money. I think the Stuff White People Like book got a six-figure advance. 
Oh my gosh. And yeah, so a lot of people were saying to me, Oh, you gotta you gotta cash out, you know, your site's really big. Have you contacted so and so who was the agent for some of these books? And what I didn't want to do was just publish a compendium of my favorite horror stories from the website, slap my name on it and call it a day. Because I had looked at some of the books from blogs that did well, and a lot of them were just repackaged content of things that I had already read online, and they didn't offer me anything new. And I was really afraid of doing that because I wanted to have a career as a writer. I didn't want to write one flash-in-the-pan book, cash out, and be happy that I thought of a good idea. I wanted to make this the first step in something. And my agent, who I'm still with, was the only person who asked what else I was working on. She wanted to see my original creative writing. And it was her suggestion that I completely agreed with that the Save the Assistance book should be almost entirely new content. How did you find your agent? Did she approach you? No. I used to be a literary agent. Uh, He was an assistant at the time. He's an agent now. But at the time, he was another sad publishing assistant like the rest of us. (laughs) And he – I really didn't want to ask him. I thought it might be weird and cause a conflict in our relationship. But one of his colleagues had asked about me, and so he introduced us, and that's her. So you – get the book deal or did you write the book before it was sold? I wrote some of it. The good thing about nonfiction is you don't usually have to write the entire proposal and it helped that the site was still up. There was years worth of content at that point. I think by the time the book came out, I'd been running the site for four years. Okay. So there was a lot of material already online. I had gotten written up a lot. So the proposal was I wrote the introduction and what ended up becoming the first chapter then outlined some of the other things that I wanted to include in the book. For example, one of the things on the site was I had a section called the bossery, which was a glossary of different kinds of bad bosses. Like, they were really fun. And my goal was I want to build these out, add some more, and get them illustrated. But I didn't want to do that without a book deal. So that was one of the things that I mentioned in my proposal that I'd really like to do. And then included some of my favorite press clippings, places where I'd been interviewed or people had written about the site. So it it was sort of more of an idea of what I thought the book could be, but also who I thought the audience for it was. So are you working at this point? Like, are you holding down a full-time job and working on the book proposal? At that point, yes. But I think a month before the book sold, I got laid off. And this was... I was no longer an assistant at this point, but I was working for a I was working for a website that got shut down by the people who founded it. So all of a sudden I didn't have a job. And then a month later my book sold, which was wonderful but also the worst financial decision that has that I've ever made as an adult. Why is that? Quick download on book proposals. Yeah. You usually when you get a book advance, it doesn't mean they just hand you a bunch of money all at once. It's usually divided into three payments. So you get one when you sign the actual contract, you get a third when you actually turn in the book, and then you get the last third when the book comes out. Well, my agent wanted to do right by me and told my publisher that I had just gotten laid off from my job. So they offered to do two payments. And unfortunately, because of the timing of the book, they both happened in the same calendar year. So that money meant that I didn't qualify for unemployment because I had too much money coming in. Yet when it came time, once I had another full-time job and the book came out, I had taken all of that money and spent it already without putting anything aside for taxes because I had needed it to pay for my actual living expenses while I did the book. So it turns out, you know, your agent gets their percentage. Mm -hmm. There's all like everything gets taken out, but no taxes get taken out. That's on you. And a lot of people who get book deals are smart enough to put aside a percentage and hold on to money so that when tax time comes up, they can just go ahead and pay it. Or maybe if they're a freelancer, they're on quarterly taxes. I didn't really think through any of that. I just thought, shit, I sold my book, but I don't have a job. What do I do? Oh, hey, look, they just handed me a check. I'll be fine. I was full-time freelance for a while before I went to Traveler. Mm -hmm. And for so long, freelancing had always been what I did on the side. So it was like my fun money. My salary was enough to cover my rent and my basic expenses. So occasionally I would get a freelance check and, like, buy a new outfit or buy something that I really wanted or plan a trip. And so it was tough once I decided to go full-time freelance 
not to think of those checks as fun money anymore. I had to get myself into this mindset of, no, these checks are my livelihood now. They're not my extra, oh, there's a sale money. And that was really tough at first. Yeah. Like, I remember the first year I had sort of a significant freelance income. I settled my taxes, and then my accountant called me, and he was like, oh, so your tax bill is like $2,000 this year because I hadn't been setting a portion of my paycheck aside, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, like, why why don't I just automatically know this stuff? But that's part of growing up and, like, doing these things when you're in your 20s. Okay, I'm going to be the person to save you from getting hit by that penalty. Yes, the IRS charges you a penalty if you don't pay a large enough portion of your tax bill throughout the year. If you're doing a substantial amount of freelance work throughout the year and you work a full-time job, two things you can do to avoid this. One, talk to your accountant, get set up paying taxes quarterly instead of annually, or two, maybe easier depending on the company you work for, talk to HR at your full-time job and start withholding an additional amount from your check each pay period. You do have to do a little math, but the good news is that if you end up paying too much, there's no penalty for receiving a large refund at the end of the year, but there is a penalty the other way around. So you write the book, it comes out, you're working at a different place, you said. You got a job. I was at the Gloss when it came out. Okay. How did you get that job? That job I got through, there is a fantastic woman who you should totally interview named Elizabeth Spires. Noted. She was one of the founding editors of Gawker. Uh, she used to be the editor-in-chief of the New York Observer. She's basically done everything. Okay. And she is from Alabama, totally gets what it's like to be from a culture where women working is confusing to some people. And the idea of moving to New York City alone and wanting to work in journalism is really confusing to people. Yeah. Um, So she and I had met through friends, and she was hired to run a company that at the time was called B5 Media. They Mm -hmm. were based in Canada. They wanted to open up an office in New York and have her run it. And through that, launch a couple of women's, sort of women's lifestyle blogs. So one of them was crushable.com, which I also ended up running later on, which was a pop culture-focused website for teens. Then there was The Gloss, which was fashion, beauty, career advice for women in their 20s and 30s and a website called The Grindstone. Um, wait, no, that wasn't right. That one was later. It was blistry.com, which was a health and wellness site for women in their 30s and 40s. So it was originally just the three editors-in-chief plus Elizabeth getting a lot of incredible hands-on mentoring and seeing how something that I wrote as an outline with her could become this beautiful, living, breathing website. And I got to pick fonts. I got to pick the name. I got to pick colors. I got to decide whether photos were going to be vertical or horizontal. I mean, looking back now, it was the coolest opportunity that I could have gotten. That sounds amazing. Yeah. At the time, I was too busy being scared out of my mind to really appreciate it. (laughs) We talked a lot about challenges, but maybe what would you say is like the biggest challenge you faced in your 20s? I feel like a lot of other women say this, and it's definitely true for me, is that I'm really impressionable. If someone says something, I'm very likely to say, oh, oh, yeah, you're right, and not necessarily examine my own opinion. And, you know, when I was in high school, I was really insecure. I feel like, like a lot of women, I just wanted to fit in, and I just wanted everybody to like me. I'm a real people pleaser. And it took me a long time to figure out who I was and to have a better sense of my voice. So when I first started working in New York and first started freelancing, the areas where I had the most success in terms of topics that I was really interested in and that I was able to sort of carve out niches writing about were assistants, obviously. Um, I did a lot of writing in the Jewish community. The job where I got laid off was uh, Juicy.com, which actually still exists. I kept it going long enough for someone to buy it, and now it's part of Tablet Magazine. But that was the one where the owners decided to get out of business. So I had also been writing a lot for Jewish media. And then the other thing was that uh, my parents are deaf, and I'm really interested and involved in sort of deaf community stuff. And I realized that not a lot of mainstream journalists were even covering the community. And because of language barriers, a lot of them were just barely scratching the surface. So the three areas where I'd had a lot of success, I thought, okay, now I'm getting somewhere. Now I'm starting to get some bylines out there. And one night I came home 
I had sold my first ever blind pitch, like an editor I didn't know, somebody I had no relationship with, a publication I'd never worked for before, um, just something that I really wanted to try. And I pitched it, and the editor was really interested, and I was so excited. I came home, and I told the guy I was dating at the time. And I said, hey, hey, guess what? I sold my first ever blind pitch. And he turns, and he says, Jews, assistants, or deaf people? Oh, no. And I took that so much to heart. I think it, it was like having all the wind taken out of my sails. And, and I don't know if he necessarily meant it to be harmful, but all I could hear in that moment was, oh, my gosh, I only write about three things. I'm a three-trick pony. I have nothing else to say. I'm just going to scrape together some kind of income the rest of my life from covering these three topics, and I don't know how to write about anything else. And I went into this huge depression after that and didn't freelance anything for months. And ultimately what I realized is that those are actually three things that I care a lot about, and there's nothing wrong with covering things that I care about. If anything, the work that I've been able to do covering the deaf community, I've written about the deaf community for the Wall Street Journal, for the Atlantic, for Pacific Standard, for BuzzFeed. There's an audience for these kinds of stories, and I was able to tell them in a way that almost no one else could. Between my access and my language skills, I realized that I could do an important service and I could address a community that no one else was addressing. And yet all I could hear was, that's not mainstream. You're never going to have a career. You have to figure out how to do something else. The one thing that I really wish I had figured out sooner in my 20s was that it is okay to like the things that I like. It is okay to specialize, and it is okay to be good at things. I definitely consider myself a generalist just because I'm interested in a lot of different things, and I've written for a lot of different kinds of publications. But the deaf community is something that really matters to me, and it is something that I will always cover, whether it's for a mainstream publication or whether it's for a community blog, because it's something that matters to me, and I get satisfaction from doing it. And I wish that I had been able to say that to him. I think it has everything to do with, like, confidence and also that horrible feeling in your 20s. I hope this gets better in your 30s, but feeling like an imposter, being having oh God. imposter syndrome. Yeah, imposter For syndrome sure. is my favorite thing to talk about. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I had a big old walloping case of imposter syndrome. But the one question that I try to hold on to for everything that I do in my career is what are you building? And I think yeah. there was a period where I accepted any freelance offer that I got, even if it was something really boring that I didn't want to cover, or frankly, I didn't have the time and the money wasn't worth it. I just said yes to everything because it felt like no one would ever hire me ever again. And I was just so excited to get work that I said yes to everything. And yet a lot of those projects were more trouble than they were worth in the long run. And they didn't help me cultivate a relationship. It was just sort of, I could have been an automaton and they wouldn't have known. And so now, not just with writing assignments, but with everything that I do in my career, I try to pull back a little bit. This is that same issue of you always get bogged down in the day-to-day. -day. How do you focus on the big picture? For me, it's by asking myself that question. Maybe this is the same question, but what was the biggest lesson you learned? You know, I spent five years as a full-time freelancer, which was great and also terrible. And one of the things that is interesting for me now that I'm on the other side, my friend Jenny, who's brilliant, um, Jenny Miller with an I, she is a feminist film critic. She has a really smart expression that she uses, which is when you're driving, bikes are the problem. When you're on a bike, cars are the problem. <laughs> and now that I'm an editor who receives pitches all day instead of being a writer who sends them all day, I was like, oh, when I was a writer, I just thought editors were jerks. And now that I'm an editor, I just hate dealing with writers. So I think it's really important to put yourself in the other person's shoes and try to think about them as a person. No, yeah. it's not the most valuable thing that I can do is reply personally to every single pitch that I get, even if it's with a no, but it goes so far compared to how much of my time it takes up. And I remember what it was like being a freelancer and pitching something that I was really excited about and feeling like I had just thrown an email out into the void and that it never went anywhere so at least if I had gotten an, if I got a no, I would feel like okay, well I tried. 
Yeah, and you need to move on. I try to keep that perspective of having been on the other side. I would say the other biggest lesson that I learned is not to just pitch your story, but to pitch yourself. Not in the sense of being a self-promoter, but, you know, early on in my career, I used to pitch deaf community stories and not even mention that I'm a CODA or that I'm fluent in sign language, which seems to me like the most obvious thing in the world. But I, like many women, was too afraid to sound like I was bragging. I didn't want to sound like I was too up on myself. But as a result, I wasn't pitching successfully because I didn't give them really critical information about why they should choose me to cover this story. So some of the best pitching advice that I got was don't just pitch the story. Explain why you're the best person to write the story. For example, now that I cover travel, you know, I, I love it when people, in addition to pitching me a story, mention maybe that they live in another country or that they have family in a certain place, that they speak the local language, whatever it may be, everybody pitches me saying, hey, I really want to go to Spain on vacation. Need anything? Yes, what I need is a pitch. And when you get 20 pitches about people who are all going to Barcelona on vacation and really hope that you will pay them to write a story about it to offset their costs, I want to know if you speak Spanish or not. When you're pitching something, you know you've got it when you feel like you are uniquely situated to write about it. Like if no one else could ever write about this topic the way you can, like Mm -hmm. you're onto something. Right. And I think that's hard. You know, when I was younger, I just didn't have the self-assurance. All I heard for years growing up was like, don't brag about yourself. People don't like that. You know, you should compliment other people. Don't say positive things about yourself. And and that was hard once I got into an industry where you have to be able to do that in order to advocate for yourself and for your work. I mean, that um, Sarah Hagee coining that phrase, God give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. Yeah. I think about that all the time. Yeah. I remember, you know, being an assistant at a job. I was probably 24, 25, like an entry-level editorial assistant. And we had this intern who was 19. And would just come in and tell me how I was doing my job wrong every day. Cool. And instead of pushing back and being like, hi, you work for me. I'm actually in charge of giving you things to do, so maybe chill. My response was to internalize all of it and be like, maybe he's right. He probably knows more than me. And I was so afraid to give him work to do, even though that was literally my job, because I was uncomfortable telling a man what to do and giving a man orders. And every time I had to ask him to do something, I'd be like, oh, hey, could you maybe, like, if you have time or something, like, do this thing for me? But you know what? Actually, you're probably really busy, so I'm just going to go do Okay, sorry I bothered you. And he had a – when his internship ended, you know, he had to do an interview to get his class credit. And in the interview, it came up, somebody asked him about his experience, and he specifically called out – he was like, Lily is really tough to work with. And he was like, she never gives me anything to do. Every time I ask her for something, she just does it herself. And that was really tough to hear, but at the same time, I realized this person's job is to do these tasks. He is here because he wants to learn. He's here to do what you tell him to do, and yet your own weird insecurity wrecked his internship because you were just too afraid to ask him to do anything. And there was that article, was that earlier this year, that was about I mean, it was last year, like, removing certain phrases from, you yes. know, like, could you maybe, <laughs> or, or constant apologizing. Yeah, like, sorry, about, like, no, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Well, it's funny because that came up, um, there was a really, one of my all-time favorite Save the Assistance posts, I thought really nailed some of this language. And I think in this story, it was a woman working for a man and he would yell at her from the other side of the office, like, even though there it wasn't empty space in the middle, it was, like, other desks and other people. Ugh. And he would just yell shit across the office and be like, hey, can you do this thing? And it would always start with, I need. So he would yell, I need you to do something. And as soon as he was done yelling, he'd kind of take a breath and say, please. <laughs> and, I yeah. felt like, and her guess, which I totally buy, is that he got some kind of lecture at work or had to attend a (laughs) seminar that was like, hey, don't yell at your assistant. Like, try saying please and thank you once in a while. And that somehow what had come out was 
this mangling of, oh, I'm still going to yell at her and tell her to do shit. But if I say please at the end, it was like this tacked on thing that he had to remember every single time. And I just thought that was hilarious because I had encountered people who were exactly like that. Oh, I will say on the uh, on the please front, the, the guy that I worked for when I was an assistant would always couch things as, can you do me a favor? I was like, it's not a favor. <laughs> That's I'm not, not your thing. friend. <laughs> yeah. Right, like, I have to do it because it's my job and that's what I get paid for. Let's not pretend that this is some kind of friendly interaction and I'm a nice lady off the street who's doing you a solid. Like, I hate you, but I'll do it. Right. Um, And if anything, it made me, like, irrationally angry. I might have preferred it if he was just like, hey, idiot, do this thing. Yeah, because then you get in the mindset of, like, you're doing, you know, like, if it's your job, all he has to say is, please do this and, like, or his right, and so I think it, it reinforces this notion that women are helping. Right. Uh, did you see the whole kerfluffle about the most recent issue of Wired? No. What has two thumbs speaks limited French and is really, really behind on editing audio? This ma. Anyway, this is dating when we did the interview, but it's still good info. So the most recent issue of Wired was dedicated to Wonder Woman. I don't know if she was on the cover, but the theme was Wonder Woman. Okay. And so the editor-in-chief, who's a guy, wrote this editor's note that kind of called out, and here are some women who helped, who are some wonder women who helped us with this issue. And it was this list of everyone from the lady who makes him sandwiches to his dog, but also the executive editor and the entire photo desk. Uh, right. And it was like, first of all, they were after the dog. Um, oh, the no. idea that the idea that this woman who's a top editor at this magazine and probably had a lot to do with the issue and the way that it came out being relegated to like isn't she such a good helper it's like when you're a little kid in the kitchen and your mom like lets you help mix cookies because right. you, you don't know how to do it for yourself it's seen as this cute little thing that kids do because they're not big enough to do it on their own and the idea of helping, and I think that was a really subtle form of sexism that came from my boss, who had lots of other big forms of sexism, but this was <laughs> one that was a little more subtle that was just like, oh, this girl is my helper, not this is a woman who's my assistant. That's super interesting. I don't think I've ever thought about that before. Well, he I'm was significantly older and definitely from a just different generation, like, he always called me his secretary, and he thought I was splitting Ugh. hairs being called an assistant. But for me, it was a huge difference. And and I think he just didn't see what the big deal was in that particular situation. And he could be very – what's the word I'm looking for? He took on a really fatherly role with me sometimes, for better or for worse. You know, he knew that I had just moved to the city, that I didn't really know anyone, that I lived in this shithole apartment with seven other people. <laughs> and occasionally, you know, I would come in on a Friday afternoon, and as he was leaving for the weekend, he would, like – put a hundred dollar bill in an envelope and hand it to me and tell me to have a great weekend. And I'd be like, well, it would also be cool if you didn't treat me like shit all the time, but I'm still going to take this money because I want to buy groceries this weekend. And when I would come in on Monday, he'd be like, so honey, what'd you do with the cash? Hope you didn't spend it all in one place. And it just felt like a weird fifties sitcom. That's not good. And I found out later on that one of the reasons that I'd been hired was actually because I was Southern uh, because since he was so old, his style was very, like, everyone was called honey and sweetie, and several women had complained about it. <laughs> and I'm Southern, so I call everyone honey and sweetie. I think when I had come in for the interview and the then receptionist had told me to just grab a seat, I was like, thanks, hon. Oh, really? And they overheard me, and they were like, get her. <laughs> oh, no. But it's funny because some of the things in my career that I always thought would be hindrances, ended up being really incredible. I briefly worked for Today.com, which is the Today Show's website. Yeah. Um, it was a really fun freelance gig. And most of my job was kind of the sort of soft focus, human interest stories, especially stuff that had gone viral on social media, like the feel-good inspirational stuff where like a photo of a good Samaritan had gone viral. My job was like find this person and interview them for our website if we can't get them to be on the show. If they live too far away or they're not interested in being on TV or we don't have a crew where they are, like, at least we can cover this story in some way. Yeah. I love that job. And it turned out that I was really good at it because I was Southern. And I had always thought that me being this nice Southern girl would be 
a problem as a journalist. I thought, oh, I don't ask tough questions. I don't like being mean to people. Uh, I don't want to be pushy. And I realized that there are lots of different ways to be a journalist. And the one that I was good at is the one where I get people to trust me right away and tell me their deep, dark secrets without realizing that they're doing it. And a lot of times what would happen is, you know, somebody's photo had gone viral. They started getting a million phone calls from reporters wanting to write about them. They would just send everything straight to voicemail because they were so overwhelmed. I mean, these are normal people. Like, I once called up a housewife in rural Kansas whose photo had gone viral. She had no idea what she was getting into. And people are terrified of talking to the media in a lot of places. Yeah. So sure. my job was, okay, if 50 news outlets call this woman, how can I get her to talk to me? And so I started asking some of my subjects. I was like, you know, I really appreciate that you called me back. I'm sure you got so many phone calls today. You know, would you mind if I ask you why you called me? And sometimes it was just that they loved the Today Show and they were really excited and it was the brand name that got them. But often I would get feedback like, oh, well, everybody left messages and you were the only one who said thank you. Really? Or I listened to all of the messages and you just sounded like my neighbor. Oh. Or, or you were the only one who said have a good day or who empathized with, sorry, I'm sure you're getting a million calls today, but my name is such and such. And I realized that there's more than one day to be a journalist and I didn't have to be confrontational because I'm not good at it. And there are people who are amazing at it. I work at CNN. I watch some of the world's best investigative reporters do their jobs every day and I am in awe of them. But I don't. I know that that's not the right career for me. I think I would like to find a balance between that and like also not letting people push me around. That's where I'm like at. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm gonna get my story. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There was um there was a panel that I went to once that was for travel writers and the guys. You know, the guy who they were interviewing was this big shot, like old school travel editor who's been around forever, and he made this comment about. I would never hire anybody to write a travel story if they didn't feel comfortable going to a country where they didn't speak the language, just walking into a bar, buying a round of drinks for everybody and getting all the local intel. And I agree with that in theory, but I went up to him afterward and I was like, hey, look, I was thinking about what you said about going into a bar. I completely agree with you, but there are certain countries in the world where if I go alone into a bar, I'm a prostitute. Yeah, for sure. It's like a gender and I was issue. Like, yeah, and I was like, what I want you to understand is that I will get my story. I will go into a tea house. I will go into a beauty salon. Believe me, I don't have a problem talking to strangers, and I love walking into these kinds of situations and getting to know the locals. I'm just not going to do it the exact same way that you did it, but I, will, I promise you I'm going to get my story. We talked about pitching advice. Do you have any writing advice for young women? Just do it. We are of a generation that we were told that we can do anything that we want, and that's great, but we're often paralyzed by our own perfectionism. And it's funny because I feel like that's one of those cheating answers in a job interview whenever they're like, what's a bad quality about you? And you're like, I'm too perfect, because you have to find a way to turn every negative into a positive. But perfectionism really is a bad attribute. It keeps you from doing your work. And I think for me, the thing that really killed that once and for all was working at the gloss, like the grind of daily blogging where we were getting 12 to 15 blog posts out a day. I just didn't have time to sit there and be precious about everything. There were some great things that I published, but also some of those posts were like a funny cat video. And it didn't have to be art. Uh, And I think getting less precious about my work and being able to pull back. And there's a really great um, Sylvia Plath story that I think about sometimes where she said once that, it's writing is like a block of wood and sometimes you go in with a really specific idea of what you're going to make out of that wood. Like you want it to be a table and nothing else will work except being a table, but sometimes it's not a table. Sometimes it's a chair and sometimes it's a child's toy. But the point is that you make the best chair and you make the best child's toy. And I like the idea that as long as it happens and as long as you make something and as long as you build something, then it's okay not everything has to come out exactly the way that you planned it. Did I ever think that I was going to start a website? Did I ever think that I was going to give people career advice for a living? Did I think that the fun project that my friend and I came up with one night while we were drinking was going to turn into a book? Never. But I just kept doing it. 
the unofficial slogan of this podcast. Just do it. Nike, if you'd like to be a sponsor, please get in touch. Amanda at lifetk.com. I loved this interview so much, and I asked Lily one last question. What are you reading now and loving? I worship at the holy altar of Rebecca Stillnet. I think she's probably the best living writer in America right now. Um, she's incredible. If you have not read Wanderlust, it's my favorite of her books. And it's what I love about her is that she can take a really small idea and make it huge and meaningful and relevant to everyone. So it's literally a book about the history of walking. And yet somehow there's a section about why women who go out alone at night are called streetwalkers and what that means and why it's so incredible that women can now walk around alone by like at night. Um, there's a whole section about protests and why do we call protests taking to the streets? I actually started reading that book when I was on a trip to Argentina and she talks about the mothers of the disappeared who march every week in the Plaza de Mayo. So I was able to go and watch them march and yeah, I, I just think uh, I just think she's incredible, and everyone should read her. Awesome! I haven't read that one yet, so oh, that sounds so <laughs> Like honestly, if she wrote a book about like I don't know, like theoretical physics, I would probably just read it. It would probably be really good too. Yeah, I mean, like, it would probably would, make it. Yeah, yeah. I, to tell you, this is kind of embarrassing, but the first time that I read her essay, "Men Explain Things to Me." I started crying and I still get emotional talking about it because it's a, there's a word for how people have treated me my whole life. And I think for a woman, like having a feeling and being able to give it a name and realize that it's happened to other people and it's not just about you is so powerful. And reading that essay and thinking, oh my God, so it's not just me. Men talk to lots of women like that. Even women like Rebecca Solnit, you know, oh, this isn't about me or how I behave or what I'm like at work. This is just a thing that happens to a lot of us, and it's not my fault. And that was a really revelatory feeling for me. You know, we throw around the word mansplaining now, and it's taken on all these other iterations, and, and we've made it into a meme, and it's funny on Twitter. But, like, that essay really, really spoke to me on a personal level. I want to thank Lily Marcus so much for her time and insights, so much good info on how books are made, what a bad manager looks like, how to pitch. This interview contained multitudes, and I hope it inspires you to just keep going. Just do it. Check out Lilith's book, Save the Assistance, and follow her on Twitter. She's at Lilith Marcus. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. Bye.